0: Good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. In our world today, it seems that everyone has an excuse for everything, even and perhaps especially when it comes to sin. Uh, we've learned to just reach down into our bag of excuses and pull out another to help rationalize away our error and guilt. Uh, this bad habit, however, is contagiously deadly. In our effort to pass on our faith to our youngest generation, we will today take an honest look at sin and seek to find from God's Word the weapons that we can deploy onto the battlefield against the strongholds of generational sin. Thanks for listening. Well, it's good to confess things at church. I got to get something off my chest this morning. Um, My family and I have been doing kind of a just-for-fun diet through the month of February, and uh, one of the things that we're to avoid uh, were, were dairy and gluten and added sugar. And that was just to try to see if we could get a little bit healthier. No particular reason, but just kind of a fun exercise. Even um, upon the ability for us to say no to our uh, desires, like uh, as a form of kind of spiritual um, uh, discipline in, in our lives. Well, thank God February's over. Let me tell you. <laughs> well, uh, to, to confess before the church, there was one night, uh, boy, my stomach was just ooh, growling. And I, I wandered down there to the kitchen and looked in the fridge. And there was something I had not seen in there before. There was a chocolate bar. You know what happened? That chocolate bar started talking to me. <laughs> now, I didn't even tell my wife this. She's hearing this for the first time as you are right now too. Um, and I listened to that little chocolate bar and I, um, you know, I, I actually am someone who doesn't really like chocolate, but you know what? I Something. I needed something. So I started to eat it. And I'm one of these people who's very disciplined because if you start something, you need to finish it. <laughs> and sure enough, I got to those last few bites and started to oh, not feel so good and woke up the next morning kind of regretting a little bit of a chocolate hangover. I don't know if anybody else has ever had that experience in their life. But if you do, this is a safe place in church. You can confess your sins. Oh, my goodness. I, um, I'm so grateful for, uh, you know, those who would come alongside those of us a little more undisciplined to help us. And that's what our family was trying to do. Because if left to yourself... By yourself, how's the, how do the diets go, folks? How, how do those go by yourself? It is very helpful that you can have people to come alongside you and, and challenge you and try to keep you on the path that you should be on. Uh, we, we call some of those people personal trainers, uh, dieticians, um, but you have an advocate for you uh, beyond the physical. You have a helper that God has given you to walk with you through life and to help keep you on the path that you should be on, to avoid those things that you should avoid. Here's the problem. In our world, we make excuses for our sins too easily. Uh, You you know, I I looked at that chocolate bar and I thought, you know what? I kind of want it. You know what? It's not hurting anybody. Uh, You know what? I I probably need to finish it because I can't put it back half eaten because then my wife will see it. So, (laughs) yeah. And we make these excuses that, that we use to, to justify our sins. Now, be honest with me here in church. Do you, know what, do you know what's wrong, right? Do you know that you shouldn't be doing it? But yet your mind has this creative ability to come up with these rationales that make it so that, oh, it's really not that bad. Um, I want you to know you have inherited that from your great-great-grandma and grandpa, Adam and Eve. In fact, if we were to turn to the book of Genesis, you would see right there in the very beginning, as the serpent comes to deceive the woman, she is now convinced, looking at this fruit, kind of like I was looking in the fridge and didn't find anything else. She's looking there and she says three things she notices of it, three ways of rationalizing to herself that it's okay to go a direction that she shouldn't go. One of them was, it's pleasing to the eye. That's one thing she says. Another thing she says is, she, see, she sees that it's good for food. It, it has some nutritional value to it. And the third is one that she got as deceived by the devil. She says that she saw that it was desirous for gaining wisdom. And so she believed the argument from the deceiver. The deceiver is the one who planted the seed. And as she listened to that argument, as she listened to that way of thinking, that now found itself implanted in her mind and now giving birth here to a fruit that would lead her to sin. I wonder if you know the excuses that stand out to you. I decided to to write down the top 10 excuses for people here when they're coming uh, to rationalize their sin. Number 10, maybe you've heard this before. uh, The devil made me do it. Um, Where did we get that one from? Right there in the garden, right that one came from there as well. That one shows uh, just a, really a measure of blame that you're not really wanting to own it yourself. Uh, the next is uh, i, I didn 't know why didn't i didn 't know it was wrong, and this is a bit of a fallacy of ignorance because uh, we know that you know you are the one lying to yourself. Uh, number eight, you hear people say this it couldn't hurt just just a taste, right? just a little not, just it's not a lot it 's just a little. There's a lot more I want to say in that one. Let me move on. Number seven. um, How about this? Uh, They deserved it. Uh, Sometimes your actions, your words are sinful in that they're retributive, um, thinking that you're really, it's up to you to repay evil for evil, when in fact that's not up to you. That is not what God has called you to. And you're not going to get away with rationalizing your sinful gossip or behavior or words because you think that you are God's measure of justice upon those who are wrong. Uh, number six, that's really not that bad. Uh, let, let me tell you, this is a fallacy of nearsightedness. Any sin that you think you could indulge in or could, uh, could go after is because you're only looking at maybe a short-term gain from it. You're just nearsighted and you haven't seen the consequences that will come later down the road. Uh, number five, oh, God made me this way. Uh, that's, that's what's called a straw man argument. Uh, It it may, in fact, be the case nobody's arguing God made you that way, whereas I would say in another conversation, I'm pretty sure sin made you that way, not God made you that way. But that's not the argument anyways. Your actions still were sinful. Who who cares how you're made? You still decided to pursue whatever it is that you pursued. Number four, I really wanted to. Uh, This one looks at a fallacy of uh, the heart's deception. Uh, Don't listen to the people in our world today that say, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. Listen to me for a moment. Your heart, according to the Bible, is deceitful. Your heart will very likely lead you in a direction that you ought not go. So let me just give a big word of caution before anyone thinks that their desires that are coming from their heart are really the the compass heading that they need to follow. Or how about this one? Uh, It's last time. I I promise. uh, Last one. Uh, this is the idea of, of uh, the change of uh, a justification of change. My dad had a saying for this. He used to say, as now, so then. I remember when he first told me that. It took me a long time to figure that out. It didn't seem like proper grammar in the sentence. As now, so then. What he meant was, if you're not willing to do this now, what makes you think you're going to change later? You, you Change now, and you'll be better later. But thinking that, oh, it's the last time. Yeah, let's be honest. It ain't the last time. But you'll rationalize your sin in that way. Number two, no one's getting hurt. It doesn't hurt anybody. Uh, this is the fallacy of individualism. Uh, it is rampant in America that we think it's my own personal private sin and doesn't affect anybody else. Uh, think of the body for a moment. Anywhere in your body, if you wounded any part of your body, does it only hurt that one part, or does it hurt the whole? Everybody see? So uh, this this is the fallacy of individualism, that your own personal private sins, really at the very least what they will do is they will move you out of a walking fellowship with God that will remove you from the rest of us in the body. Not saying you lose your salvation, but that you're not walking in step with God. And therefore, you will be losing out on effectiveness to serve the whole body. If you stub your toe, it's not just the toe that hurts. You, the whole body's got to, got to now help the rest here. So thinking that it's not hurting anybody is just a fallacy of individualism. And then, what do you think? Number one of the top ten reasons rationalize your sin is everybody's. Everybody's doing it. Yeah, this is population fallacy. Just because it's everywhere doesn't mean that it's right. This is a problem. This is a problem because many times in our homes it's gone unaddressed and maybe you recognize that even in the generations that have come before you. And so what we're doing today is part two in a longer series of trying to keep our kids from becoming the final generation. We are going to be giving our attention to what I'm calling generational strongholds. And today we're going to look at another weapon, a weapon that you can use against the strongholds that exist Because of generational sin. Just as point of review from last week, I gave you four different categories. I want to review this because I want to make sure we're locking in the proper way of thinking about generational sin. It comes in one of four ways or sometimes all four at once. But number one is a predisposition. I had some people after church ask me, isn't number one and number three the same? Uh, having a a predisposition or a bent to something. And isn't the same as just when you learn a pattern of sin and I want to say, no, that's not the case at all. Uh, There is a truth that your actions influence what you pass down. In fact, if if you struggled with alcoholism or your parents struggled with alcoholism and... Find it an addiction in your life. We can see scientifically scientifically, that these actually travel within family dynamics. That there's something that gets passed down. Even if a child was up for adoption to find themselves now in a new family, in a new setting, with new parents, it may not be learned, but they themselves may still find they have a genetic predisposition towards a certain bent or inclination. That is a kind of generational stronghold that we need to be aware of consequences are those that just fall as a course of the sins that came before us because you may be forgiven. Do you remember the story of David and Bathsheba? Do you guys remember that story from last Sunday? Um, Nathan said, David won't die. We're good then, right? No problems. No, there were still consequences because it was the child that was the result of David's sinful action that was going to die and David had to live with those consequences even onto a family that became more fractured Um, because those are consequences for sins. Though he himself was forgiven, sometimes those generational strongholds still exist. And the last one, uh, if one, two, and three don't hit you, I guarantee you four does. I also guarantee you, you have one, two, and three as well, but you have to look a little bit harder and honestly for those. Inherited sin simply means that you are the product of two sinners. And so you carry a nature that regardless of whether you think you are doing sinful acts, guess what? You have sin because you've inherited it. Okay, I said enough on that from last week. I'll be careful not to move on, or careful to move on from that. Um, One of the things that uh, I'd like us to do today is to begin with addressing something that I am going to be calling the sin cycle, the sin cycle. Uh, You're going to see this in our primary text, but I want you to see it in another place as well. From uh, James chapter 1, James writes these things, when tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me, for God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after sin, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it's full grown, it gives birth to death. Here's what I want us to lock down for today. Sin is not just an act in your life. The act of sin that shows up in our lives is the result of a process. In fact, it's like a cycle. I want to give you a a picture to to kind of conceive of this, and it's that of of an iceberg. If you think that um, uh, the the sins that you commit, the ones that you and I are aware of, they're just the tip of the iceberg, but there's 80% of it that's happening really below the surface that doesn't manifest itself as an action, and that is what we're going to address today. Um, it starts in um, sinful actions. They start in two places. Um, you, you'll see the cycle here ending with what we pass on generationally. But what do you start with? What has been passed on to you? So the sins of the generation that have come before you, those things that you have inherited from mom and dad sinners before you, those become that which is passed on. And the first place that we see this up is in half truths. Um, this was in the garden. Uh, What was passed on to Eve? Do you remember? It was a lie from the devil. The devil says, as Teresa helped us remember, surely you will not die. Uh, Time out. God said you would. So who's right? God or the devil? And yet it was a half truth because they didn't physically die in that moment, but spiritually in that moment, they were separated from God. Evidence because Adam and Eve, as soon as they eat, realized they were What? Yeah, they now immediately had this separation from God that for them was impressed upon them, manifested as shame. They didn't know what that was like before. And it all came from a half-truth. Now, I got another word for this. I want to call this um, an argument. Uh, For for the sake of our discussion as we're going to look into uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, let's call these arguments. They're positions. They're maxims. They are uh, kind of a saying or or a a half-truth that is going to be an argued that you, for you to believe, for you to adopt, for you to take within you, which is exactly what Eve did. Um, we, we have a bunch of those that we've already looked at. All of these would be rationalizations that are arguments that make it so that you can do what? Whatever. So you can sin. That's right. Because everyone's doing it because they really deserved it. Because, well, I didn't know. Right. Yeah. Every one of these are a kind of argument. And arguments will lead to beliefs. So as soon as that argument, as soon as that little concept makes its way into your mind, you will start to dwell on this. And this is what happened to Eve. For her, do you remember? The thought was, well, it's good for fruit. It's it's pleasing to the eye. It's desirable for gaining knowledge. She started to change in her beliefs. And I'm going to give us just a little different word here. We're going to call those thoughts. So uh, what's passed on to you are the arguments of the world, those then in turn produce in your mind or in your heart thoughts of rationalization. This is precisely what James was saying. Question, does God tempt you? Yes or no? no? No. In fact, all the temptation that you experience comes from evil desires within you. And then after temptation has shown up, you become enticed. And now we're at this stage. You are right now. And those thoughts, according to James will conceive and give birth to sin. This is, this is where sin comes from. Now, it doesn't end here because your sinful actions will produce habits. They will be the things that you're used to doing in your life now if they go unaddressed. And those habits will ultimately produce a kind of character. This is who I am. And guess what your character does? It gets passed on the next generation. And so this is what I want us to just lock down here. Sin is not just an action. Sin happens through a process in our hearts of being confused because of arguments that store up in our minds. These little seeds that become thoughts that rationalize sinful actions that we do. And if they go unaddressed, they will become habits. Habits will determine now this is your character. This is who I am. Can't change my mind. This is who I am. And that's what you will pass on. We, if we're going to address this, do you know where you need to start? This is why why I want to educate us on this. Generational strongholds are real. Amen? I hope you recognize them. I hope two Sundays in a row you're like, yeah, I've been giving some thought to this. I see the patterns that I need to break. Because if it doesn't end with you, guess what it does? Just gets passed on to your kids. And ultimately, as we look to the church, there is no generation leaving the church faster than the millennial generation. And what about the one that comes after them? So if this is going to end, it has to end with who? It has to to end with us right now. But if I only ever address this part, I'm actually not dealing with the root. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the weapon to help us deal with the strongholds that show up down the line over here. You know what I, I wonder if you're just brave enough, as you've been given some thought to this, to, to flip over your sermon notes and write down what generational stronghold is in your life. You're you brave enough to really put, 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 put a name to that, to admit that, to confess that before God? Because here's the problem. if we don't address sin in our lives, it's like living with mouse traps throughout your living room, and, and every now and then you step on one and it, and it clicks to you, right? And you just get used to having mousetraps click click to your toes all day long, walking around justifying them. Oh, everybody's got those. Ain't hurting nobody. Oh, I didn't even know about that. And, And you will rationalize sin in your life so that it just goes unaddressed. And it will be passed on to those ones that come after us. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, open up there with me. We're just going to read six verses. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, seeking to find out how Paul will address uh, these strongholds that exist in the lives of believers. Page 1652 in the Pew Bible. Chapter 10, verse 1, Paul writes this. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold, went away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with, are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Okay. Here, here, Here's the situation. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. This, this is not his first letter to them. He's written a few letters already. And, and they've gotten a little bit upset with him because he writes in a way. That's kind of some big britches there, Paul, for how you write to us. In fact, if you go back to First Corinthians, at one point he says... Take the man who's sinning and you need to kick him out of the church because I've already passed judgment on him. Paul Paul was serious about the purity within the body of Christ when it comes to sin. And they're reading these letters and they're like, man, this guy talks a big talk. But, you know, he, he's not bold like that when he's with us. And so they started to accuse Paul of, of really operating kind of like the world operates. You know, a b- bunch of big chest puffed out, talking a big talk, but really just very timid and that his actions really don't follow in correspondence with his words. That, that's the accusation that here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 we're dealing with. I, I have three primary observations I want you to see from this text. Uh, number one is this. We are to demolish arguments. This word demolish, it means to, to tear down or to, to actually to bring low so, so the argument here is this, he calls it a pretension. It's this really lofty, bold type of way of, of talking a big talk. And the accusations that they're giving, he's saying to demolish those, we tear those down. We tear, we tear them down. Uh, the word tear down here uh, would, would be better translated with the idea of um, tearing down false reasoning. Because that's what the arguments were. We, we looked at 10 of them already. Y'all, y'all on board with me, right? The, these false ways of thinking, these false justifications, it's, it's false thinking. Paul says, yeah, every time we encounter that, we don't just let it stand. We, we don't let it just go its own way. We tear them down. So Paul's critics were saying things to Paul like, uh, yeah, you, you, you talk a big talk, but you, Paul's actually pretty wimpy. Uh, oh, Paul's so needy. If you read a little bit further, he starts talking about all of his needs Paul's so needy all the time, always asking for help. Um, they'll say things like, Paul's preaching doesn't even compare to some of these better guys that we find. These are all the ac- accusations that they're, they're bringing to Paul. The way he tears down arguments is to f- first and foremost say, I don't fight the way the world fights. That's how I tear down arguments. Is the devil going to lie to you? Yes. Are there going to be arguments that he's going to bring, that you will believe them? Yes or no? Yes. Absolutely. Uh, step number one is in this is that we do not answer back the way we are addressed. And Paul doesn't do that either. He doesn't answer back accusations with defensiveness. They, they accuse Paul of something and Paul does not get defensive. Uh, We don't, Paul doesn't compare himself with others to say he's better, he's more courageous, he's more competent. Do you know what that would be doing? That would be using the weapons of the world. That's what the world would do. If you're being accused of being low, you would answer back by being high. If you're accused of something, you'll answer back with another accusation. Paul says we don't do those things. In fact, we have this modeled for us in 1 Peter. Uh, Peter writes this to the church. He says, to this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Here's what I want you to see. When it, when it comes to demolishing arguments, the way you do it isn't by answering back. You don't stoop to attacks and insults and slander and name-calling and belitt- belittling others. Jesus didn't do that. And so, well, what do we do? How, how do we demolish these arguments? Well, Paul shows us in 9. He says, by showing obedience to Christ through our actions. I, I, w- I want you to see that the context here, it, it, we, we find this answer. If you could, if you still have your Bibles, if you could just turn back with me just to chapter nine, just a few verses before where we began, in in chapter nine, verse thirteen, I have it on the screen here as well because I, I really want you to see this. Um, the church in Corinth had given Paul a gift, and this is what he says right at the very end of nine, verse thirteen. He says, "Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, think about that. For Paul." What was it that proved the accusation against God's people couldn't stand? It was their service. It was their actions. Look, people can say a lot of things, but your actions can shut them right up. It was by their service they proved themselves that others will praise God. Watch this. For what? For the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. I I believe in Jesus. Jesus. I go to church. How would anyone know? Do you have have a life that follows in correspondence with that faith? Do you have actions that people can look to and say, man, you don't even have to have that person open their mouth. You can tell by their countenance, by the way that they walk, by the way that they talk, by the way that they live. They follow Jesus Christ. There is something different about them because they have an obedience that accompanies their confession of the gospel. You guys, are you guys tracking with me on this? How, how do you demolish arguments by showing obedience to Christ in what? In our actions. All right, that's the first one. Number two is this: we need to take thoughts captive. Take thoughts captive. You'll see this here in verse five. Uh, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets, sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought. This is a great word. Um, there's a reason why I have entitled this message with strongholds because it's a matter of warfare. Remember last week? Ready or not, there's a battle going on. Are you prepared to, to battle war, to go to war against these accusations coming at you? And right here we see another wartime word used. To take captive is a, is a word that's used from wartime that means to force complete control over. That's what it means to take captive. To forcibly enforce complete control. Have you ever had any thoughts that are just like ping pong balls in your head? Ding, 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 ding. Any anyone late at night, right, trying to go to sleep, and your mind just ding, 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 ding. Those thoughts having having their way, doing whatever they want to do. It was it was a couple years ago. uh, We discovered in cleaning the nursery that it looked like there were some mouse droppings. Now, of all the places you don't want mice, it's where? In the nursery. In the nursery. And so you know what we did? We set some, we set some mouse traps. Now, Marvin was helping me with this. He, he would check with me all the time. He would say, and again, I want you to know, this was years ago. This is not present day. <laughs> we still have traps set, just so you know, but uh, we don't have the problem anymore. Um, that, that one time, we caught a mouse. And, and do you know what we did? We went over to the trap, and we said, here you go, little mouse, and we let him go. Do you think we did that? No! Because they don't belong there. They needed to be taken captive with complete control. Listen to me, that's the same. If you, can, if you can resonate with that picture of a little mice running free and that ought not belong, that's what some of these thoughts that we go through our mind are like. They're in the garden, Eve looking at the tree. You can imagine being there. You know, maybe she starts kind of rocking. Back, back and forth, kind of, kind of wringing her hands up. It, fruit looks good. Uh, I mean, it's beautiful fruit, right? I mean, all these others are nice too. And, and I've been told that it would be good for getting knowledge. Right, what are those thoughts doing? Oh, they're starting to ping pong, right? They're starting to have her way. Paul says, we take them captive. They do not get free reign. Now, let me tell you the number one place where today the evil one will bring these thoughts into your mind. It will be to accuse you upon your identity. If the devil could get you to doubt that you really are a child of God, he can have victory over you. Now, we, we know that the children of God need to obey God. We see this in many places. Just one verse here, John 10. Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they do what? They follow. That's how it works. Uh, I, I know when the master speaks. I listen and I follow. I follow. I want you to see what happened to Jesus and as an example of the devil's scheme. right? Let's pay attention to what the devil does here. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is going to be tempted. You guys know the story? He's taken out into the wilderness by the Spirit, and the devil comes to tempt Jesus. The tempter came to him and said, If you're the stone of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. They will, not lift up, they will lift up their hands and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, every time I have preached on this passage, I have always focused on the temptations. But I've missed something. Did you catch it this time? How did the devil actually begin with the thought? questioning Jesus's identity. This is how the evil one will attack you. And this was, honestly, this is a review of last Sunday because I told you the, the number one weapon I can give you is to remember you belong to a new family. Do you remember that? Like, if, if you want to battle against the family strongholds, here's where you start. I belong to a new family. Whatever patterns and behavior I inherited, I have, I have now died to, in Christ... And I've raised a living in a new family. That's number one. How's the devil going to attack you after that? Yeah, do do. Are you really a child of God? Do you really follow Him? That will be a little thought that will work its way like a mouse through your mind. And we need to make sure, like Paul says here, that we entering into warfare take those thoughts captive. But here's what you do with them: you make them obedient to Christ. You make them obedient to Christ. Last Sunday, uh, we talked about by belonging to a new family, you now have an external lineage. It's the family of God. You're no longer the same externally, and you have an internal transformation. You now have a new spirit. You have the spirit of God living in you. So outwardly and inwardly, you are new. You belong to Jesus Christ. You are a child of God. And so when those thoughts come through your mind, you trap them. You force control over them. And then you remind them, uh-uh-uh, a child of God does not say this. A child of God does not act like this. When you are given opportunity to revile against somebody, to belittle somebody, to gossip against somebody, you take that thought that's about to produce a sinful action and you grab hold of it and you force it under the submission to say, a child of God doesn't act this way. A child of God doesn't do this. Now, I'm going I'm to... I would really love to pause here because I've got something really important to say at the end, but I want to hint to it one more time. Everybody listening? This is not a sermon that says, "Try harder." Oh man, pastor, give me a break." That, that is not helpful. I want to be honest with you, you cannot do this alone. If you're trying to, you know what that's like? That's like getting up in the middle of the night looking in the fridge and finding a chocolate bar. What's going to happen? Maybe not tonight maybe not the next night, eventually, alone, you will fail and fall on this. But you are not alone. You are not alone. This is why we have each other. This is why we have the Spirit of God indwelling us. Everybody with me on that? I'm going to come back to that at my very end as well. All right, number three is this. You need to punish actions of disobedience. So he concludes here in verse 6. He says, And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Uh, the word "punish" here means to punish on the basis of what is rightly deserved, not draconian, not over heavy-handed. No, this this is the right punishment that comes from this sin. Now, if you sin, um, we we've looked at consequences that come from this, but the Christ follower should be right here again at the foot of the cross. Because what does the Bible say? If we confess, when well, if we confess our sins; He's faithful to forgive us. So that's where you belong. That's an apt punishment for your sin. But if you're not willing to do that, we need to make sure that we say of our sins what God says of our sins. And punishment needs to be followed by replacing them with obedience to Christ. Sinful actions need—they need to be replaced with obedience to Christ. Uh, Paul says. In verse six, he says, "We will be ready." Does your Bible say that? We will be ready. If you were to read this in the original language, it, it would—you—the idea you would get from it is, I have no hesitation. I'm ready. I'm watching right now. If you see a mouse in a trap, you're at—you're at your house. You see a mouse in a trap. Do you leave it for later? Ah, I'll get that later. When, when do you deal with it? Right now, you deal with it. Right. Do you want to know the thing that you will have battling against that type of lack of hesitation? It's this list right here. This list and those arguments, they will be those things that will cause you to delay and to wait and to put it off because what you'll be doing is not saying of sin what God says of sin. You will not be taking it seriously. And the worst result of that may be you passing that on to who? To your kids and to your grandkids. So here's what I want you to see. As we looked at earlier, do you remember the... Uh, the iceberg. Everybody remember the iceberg picture? Yeah. Yep. So what's handed, what, what's been passed on to you for, uh, first and foremost becomes those arguments. Well, look what the first one we have here is an argument. An argument leads to thoughts and then th- the thoughts lead to sinful actions. The same progression that we see in James for producing sinful actions is the same strategy that I'm offering us today for how to battle against sinful actions. It starts with those arguments. That's where it begins. And if you believe those, now your thoughts get controlled by them. And ultimately, that will lead to sinful actions. There's one other thing I want to point out on these three observations, is that all three of them are answered with obedience. They're all answered with obedience. Again, you can't do it alone. You need the helper to help you do that. So here's, here's what we do with this. Um, how do we obey Christ? That's a really good question, isn't it? All right, how do we do this then? How, how, how should I obey Christ? Number one, do not fight with the weapons of the world. That's what Paul says. Did you see how he begins verse 1? He's got people saying, You're big man, Paul. Talk a big talk, Paul. Look what he says in verse one. By the boldness of my truth I come. Is that what he says? What's it say? By, by meekness and by gentleness he comes. Paul's not fighting tit for tat, he's not coming eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Paul's actually fighting with his actions. His life will speak for him. Your actions, what you do, will speak for against any accusation that you have. I just, I, I struggle with this a little bit. In my heart, I'm a defensive type of person. If you accuse me of doing something wrong, I'm likely to defend myself right away. Uh, there was a very wise pastor uh, that met us down in the mission field in the Bahamas. And he, in his 80 years of ministry, said he used to be like that too, but he no longer does that. He says, I can't change what people think of me. I can't change that. All I can control are my actions. People are going to say whatever they're going to say. I I actually got a phone call from a member in our church last week that said, there's gossip going around Channing. There's gossip going around Segola. what, what, What can I do with that? Can I change that? All I can do is control my actions. And people are going to say whatever they want to say. After that, I have to work on demolishing those strongholds by being a man of integrity with my actions. So here's where it starts. You don't fight the way the world fights. Um, I want you to see that in our scheme here, what that does is it knocks down the world's agenda. If you start with that, you will diffuse that first one because that's what's passed on to us is operating the world the way the world works. Number two is this, pursue the knowledge of God. Pursue knowledge of God. There in the garden, you have Eve, right? And she's got these thoughts going through her mind. She's believing the arguments that came from the devil. Those arguments are against who? who? Who spoke first in the garden? Not to Eve, but it was God who spoke first. This is what God has said. Now, if Eve had pursued that, if she pursued a greater understanding of what God had actually said, then when the devil came and said, did God really say, she could be like, yeah, I've looked into it. I believe it. Because I'm pursuing a knowledge of God. Um, This shows up in verse 5 when he says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Do you you want to know how to battle that? Learn more about God. Pursue a knowledge of God. And you will find that those sins that so easily become uh, stemming from arguments, they'll lose their grit. They will not have their effectiveness, which for us means number two is taken care of. Your pursuit of the knowledge of God will help you make better sense of those lies, those half-truths that enter into our world. Psalm 119, I think it's verse 11, says, Your word I have stored up in my heart that I would not, who knows the end? Sin Sin against thee. I was reminded of that verse recently. And if you pursue God, if you search his word, if you store it in your heart, it will keep you from the top of that iceberg. All right, number three. Lastly, is this: you need to take captive worldly thoughts. We we looked at that already here. Um, I I could I could preach another forty minutes just on this out of Romans twelve. Um, Therefore, in light of God's mercies, offer your bodies as the living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind, right here. Don't let those thoughts ping-pong back and forth. Grab hold of those things and say, a a follower of Jesus does not act like this. A follower of Jesus does not speak like this. I'm not going to let those thoughts dwell in my heart, dwell in my head. I'm going to force them under obedience to Christ. Again, you can't do it alone. You need the Spirit's help with this. But if you do, what you will find is, we knock down the third. And if you can take out these three strongholds, guess what? you will not have those actions of sin that manifest in your life. You'll still be a sinner. You'll still have that nature in you, but you will find victory in your life, routinely moving higher in your sanctification, finding less and less infatuation with the things of this world, falling more and more in love and satisfied with the things where Christ is. Okay, that's all I got. (laughs) Should ask if there are any questions. Did you check the sundial there? Yeah. <laughs> Look, I, I started off when we celebrated communion with Colossians uh, chapter 3. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ appears, you will appear with him also. That's our hope. Um, I I said a few times I wanted to remind you, uh, in the same way that you go into the fridge late at night by yourself, you're going to fail. We need help. We need each other. Foremost given to you is the Spirit of God as your helper. Rely on the Spirit of God. Listen to the Spirit of God. And secondarily, but another amazing blessing, is the body around you be open with one another, share with one another, encourage one another, hold fast to one another, and that God may be pleased that on the day of our Savior's return, we are found as those who, whether it has to suffer for it, stand stalwart for the faith handed to us that we will hand that on. Amen? Amen. That's perfect.